Well, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much, all these people, for being here. I'm really delighted to welcome you all tonight. My name's Des Manderson. Um, I want to begin by uh, acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and to pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal tribe, past and present. Um, I want to extend a welcome to everybody here on behalf of the Centre for Law, Arts and the Humanities, which I direct with Professor Tim Bonnyhady. I want to thank in particular the ABC and the National Library, without whom this event would simply not have taken place for all their support and assistance, particularly Stuart Bain and Lindsay Noon from the Library and Paul Barclay from Radio National's Big Ideas Unit. The ANU, as many of you may know, is not so much an institution as a set of overlapping ecosystems. Um, and uh, the Centre for Law, Arts and Humanities is an interdisciplinary enterprise and I also want to, uh, before I get carried away by the event, acknowledge the support, not least the financial sponsorship that has made possible this event and that is really a testament to the ANU's commitment to interdisciplinarity, including the support of the Colleges of Law and the College of Arts and Social Sciences. Within CAS, the Peter Herbst Colloquium, in Continental Philosophy and the ANU School of History. And I also want to acknowledge and thank the ANU Gender Institute and the ANU Humanities Research Centre, both real tributes to the importance and to the value to the university of this kind of cross-faculty, um, cross-disciplinary endeavour. So, very briefly, what is the Centre for Law, Arts and Humanities? Well, about the same time that Thomas More was starting to think about utopia, uh, Raphael was finishing the Stanza della Segnatura, uh, in the papal apartments in the Vatican. And if you've ever been in that room, you'll know that each wall of the four main branches of knowledge in 16th century Renaissance thought gets their own mural. There's uh, philosophy, theology, poetry and law. But none of them exist in isolation. All those murals, all those frescoes are in interaction with each other. And, and this is ground zero of Renaissance humanism. Raphael's work brings into harmony the competing claims of Christian and classical thought, shows the world of letters and jurisprudence not as opposites but as complementary. Under the watchful eyes of the four disciplines on the ceiling and stories that explore the intersection of all of these branches of knowledge so that you have Adam and Eve at the intersection of theology and law um, and you have the judgment of Solomon at the intersection of law and philosophy and above all with the figure of justice casting a melancholy eye on all these different areas. So to me, that room is ground zero for the centre of law, arts and the humanities and it's a statement of law in partnership with the humanities. Law not as a technical widget but as part of the great stream of thought and feeling which has animated the West, at least, since classical times. And on the other hand, the arts and humanities, not as ornaments or as entertainments or as sideshows or escapes from the real work of governance, but as central to its meaning, its values and its spirit. So law and the humanities is, is a dialogue, a conversation, a way of thinking and learning that I think matters now more than ever. And that's why we're gathered here to enrich that dialogue and connect it to our cultural landscape on the, on the one hand and to our present concerns, urgent, necessary, some might even say desperate, on the other. So in 1516, Thomas More, we say the 500th anniversary, but universities are very slow-moving beasts, uh, and it's now the 501st anniversary, but frankly that was not going to sell any tickets. 
So I hope you, you know, forgive me the little little charade there, the little slate of, of numerical hand. But Thomas More, for a few months, turned from the business of law and government, placating Henry VIII and burning the occasional heretic, usual sort of thing, to think more about the society, what it should be like or could be like. Utopia was a literary thought experiment. The result, as we'll learn, was a new word, a pun, partly no place and partly a beautiful place that came to challenge generations, indeed centuries, of thinkers. Moore's utopia invented not just a word, but a whole way of thinking, part political philosophy, part science fiction. And it was a way of writing that demanded that we put aside all our assumptions about the way the world actually worked, about what was normal and natural and necessary, and start again. It was a kind of intellectual ground zero. And the result has stimulated texts and arguments ever since. But what does it mean to engage in utopian thinking? What kind of conversations does this experimental fictional genre invite? And above all, is such a language even possible anymore? Faced with the frightening challenges of the modern world, is the idea of utopia even meaningful? Is it useful or trivial or downright dangerous? So to help us, help us think big, we're joined tonight by four eminent public intellectuals from Australia and around the world. Philosopher Peter Singer, renowned writer Alexis Wright, historians Jacqueline Dutton from Melbourne and Russell, and ja Russell Jacoby from the UCLA. And to guide the conversation, please welcome your host from ABC's Big Ideas, Paul Barclay. Thank you. And uh, thanks very much to DES, the Centre for Arts, Law and the Humanities and uh, the National Library We've all joined forces with the ABCRN for this event. It's a delight to be here. It's a delight to see uh, such a big audience uh, wanting to come along to the theatre tonight to talk about and engage in ideas. Uh, some time ago, Des uh, approached me with the idea of holding this public forum, and it was, in fact, during the 500th anniversary that he uh, approached me. Uh, and so I can attest to the fact that it's not just uh, the ANU whose wheels turned slowly, uh, the ABC2 took some time to get there. Uh, uh, but it's come to fruition. I'm so happy it has, and uh, Des has pulled together a tremendous panel of speakers tonight. Um, as Des has said, I'm Paul Barclay from Big Ideas on RN. We go to air every night, uh, Monday to Thursday at 8 o'clock. Uh, we also have a big uh, podcast audience I encourage you to subscribe to our podcasts. They're fabulous. This program, this event, will turn up as a program shortly on our podcast feed. Uh, 500 years ago, 501 years ago, I should say, uh, Thomas More, the philosopher, lawyer and author, wrote the book and, as uh, Des says, coined the word utopia, a word that's come to have uh, connotations and meanings, both aspirational and pejorative. Uh, More wrote at a time of, uh, of discovery, uh, as the so-called new world was emerging. Perhaps this was an era more conducive to imagination and utopian thinking, uh, for it is difficult, I think, to claim that we presently live in utopian times, although perhaps there'll be some dispute uh, of that proposition. Optimism, it seems to me, is in rather short supply at the moment. You don't have to look very far to detect cynicism, pessimism, even despair. Dystopian rather than utopian thinking seems to be more prevalent. Global warming, extreme poverty, ecological 
destruction, cynical politics, the global displacement of millions of people. Perhaps these challenges are exactly why we need more utopian thinkers than ever before. Is it too late to dream, uh, to open up our imaginations? I sent a cheeky tweet just before I came here tonight where I posted, where did all the utopian thinkers go? Are we gripped by utopian visions? And it drew a bigger response than almost any tweet I've sent out in recent times. Many people questioning the assumption of my tweet. So I took some hope from that, uh, even though it is only a tweet. Uh, as Des has said, we had a great panel of experts with us tonight. I'm going to uh, jump straight into it, and uh, I thought I'd start with you, Russell, and start, in fact, with uh, Moore himself. So Moore wrote The New Island of Utopia in 1516. Remind us, who was Moore, and what was his idea of a new island of utopia, just, just briefly? Well, Thomas More, uh, you know, we don't we don't completely understand Thomas More because he had two lives, both as this theologian uh, and a defender of the faith, uh, which led to his untimely death, uh, and yet as this as someone who had this idea about uh, a place which stands in some contradiction to his own life but it's part of the fascination that he did have this idea. Uh, he is not the first to have it, but he gives it a term, which, which uh, is with us to today. And it's a vision of a world which I think in many ways we would not like. I mean, we, we wouldn't like the structure of it. You know, get up five in the morning. Uh, who wants to do that? On the other hand, it has ideas, I think, about uh, even consumerism, about leisure, about tolerance, uh, which are very much uh, ideas which remain unrealized in our, in our time. And that, that's the stuff which resonates, at least to me, uh, across the centuries. Uh, it's not so much the details about the dinner, mm. who speaks first at the dinner. Thomas More tells us, you know, mm. the elders will speak first. So the uh, ideas and concepts in that book, now 501 years old, remain relevant today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's ideas about hunting. There's ideas, uh, yes, about consumerism, you know, that we shouldn't work to produce junk, basically. Mm. You know, that gold, gold, he says, is worthless. Uh, you know, why, why we value it? It does nothing. We need useful stuff, and we shouldn't be working to produce junk. What, I mean, there's was, was his book considered important at the time that it was released? Well, it's a good question. I, you know, it was written in Latin, so it was originally for the literati, mm. uh, with a restricted audience. So it gradually uh, was translated in the vernacular. Uh, I don't. As I think, as they say in Hollywood, it, it has legs. <laughs> you know, it lasted, uh, unlike many others. Uh, so I don't know how to, an initial huge impact. Yes, but, and, yeah. and, and as you said, um, Moore himself said he wouldn't want to live in his utopia, raising the question of a utopia that you don't want to live in, which sounds rather counterintuitive. Well, I think everything about Moore is counterintuitive, and that's part of the charm of it. I mean, he led a life which he did, uh, as Des mentioned, he, he, he pursued heretics, and yet in utopia, there's tolerance for moon, moon worshippers. Uh, you know, put the two together. Hmm. In this sense, it is an act of imagination. 
uh, and an act, you know, which is transcending his life and his own beliefs, which makes it, you know, that much more interesting that he, he could express these ideas while his own life stood in, in, in contrast to them. Uh, Peter, you told me beforehand that it's been a long time since you've cast your eyes over Moore's New Island of Utopia, so I won't uh, interrogate you too deeply, but I understand that on his island, his utopians didn't hunt or slaughter animals, but they did eat meat. Uh, that's a paradox. Can you talk to that for us? Well, it's not so much of a paradox because um, what happens in Utopia is that the citizens of Utopia don't eat meat, but the animals are slaughtered by their slaves. Now, you might say, oh, there's slaves in Utopia. That mm. doesn't sound so good. That's exactly right? what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> so the, the slaves are criminals, as I understand it. Um, uh, and, and the reason that the citizens don't slaughter animals is that that would kind of desensitise them. Uh, that would degrade them and corrupt them and make them, you know, harden them. So you leave that to those who, I guess, are already degraded and corrupt and hardened, the criminals. Um, and Moore doesn't think about the fact uh, that, oh, well, we're consigning these animals to be killed, uh, handled by the dregs of society, the, the hardest, the most cruel. So presumably the animals are going to suffer more than if um, the citizens themselves, who are more sensitive, had actually killed them. So... Mm. That's far from utopian in my view. Uh, but nonetheless, the utopians didn't eat meat uh, as part of his vision. What, what, what was that all about? No, I don't think that it's they weren't that vegeta they, they weren't vegetarian. They were not vegetarians. No, it describes, in fact, markets at which meat is sold. Okay. So, so I think they do. They were gluten intolerant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, Jackie, it's important to note uh, that when Moore was imagining his utopia, it was the time of the so-called New World, wasn't it? It was a, a period of discovery, discovery in inverted commas, I should mm. say, of, uh, of the New World, uh, and it evoked all sorts of possibilities. What were people in the old world of Europe imagining about this, this New World? What are some of the utopias they were inventing? It's a fascinating time uh, when we're looking back at uh, the, the early voyages of discovery, as you say, these voyages of exploration out into the new world. Um, and when we look at, at Thomas More's book, uh, the first part of his book is actually a critique of British society at the time, whereas the second part of the book is a travel narrative, really. It's a travel narrative to the island of Utopia at a time when other Europeans were travelling to the New World and discovering all sorts of things that could not necessarily have been imagined had they not seen it with their own eyes. So the island of Utopia really did fit into a paradigm of extraordinary sites um, that, that the, the current voyagers were discovering. Um, the other thing that was happening at this time, of course, uh, is colonialism the expansion of the um, European empires. And we must also recognise that Thomas More's utopia was a colony. It had been colonised by the utopians. So it is a celebration of uh, a, a country, a, an island that has been made to be inhabited by a chosen people and that the indigenous inhabitants of this island were removed from that island. So this is, this is uh, a story that we've, we've seen before, we've heard before, and even in, in the utopian world of, of Thomas More, we see some similar kinds of undercurrents that we might not 
look upon so um, with such kind eyes mm. today, such as slavery, colonialism, and and other elements. Yes, it's too. why I mentioned uh, mm. in inverted commas the New World because it is code for uh, for colonisation that that of followed. Course, yes. uh, Australia was imagined as a type of utopia by the Europeans before they even knew that it existed. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Um, uh, this is the area of research that I've worked on, I suppose, uh, the most in, in terms of utopian studies. And I've been fascinated by the fact that uh, for about four centuries, Australia was imagined by Europeans before it was really actually known. So one of the first utopias written about Australia was written by a Frenchman by the name of Gabriel de Foigny in 1676, and it was called The Southern Land Known. And it was a projection of the Australian continent, the Southern Land, it wasn't known as Australia at this stage, um, and it was inhabited by hermaphrodites. So this is really that idea of inversion. The southern land is the inversion of what is happening in Europe. It is a place of hybridity, monstrosity. It is a place of um, otherness, extreme otherness, that um, cannot really be reconciled with a European understanding of, of the world. Of course, this idea of the Antipodes had, had been um, part of the worldview since Ptolemy, since um, uh, Pythagoras, since, since antiquity. But it came back in the Renaissance and continued throughout really four centuries, I think, of writings about Australia from, from Europe. This idea that Australia was an inverted mm. Europe. A kind of mysterious and un almost unknowable place. It's Indeed. interesting that they would project. What made them project the hermaphrodite idea onto onto Australia is just a product of a fertile imagination. <laughs> a very fertile imagination. A very fertile imagination. A century later, another French writer, Retif de la Bretonne, at around about the same time that uh, Cook was arriving in Australia, alongside some other French explorers as well, of course. Um, uh, Retif de la Bretonne wrote a book called The Austral Land Discovered by a Flying Man. So the idea was that this great Australian continent had to be traversed by people with wings because it was so enormous. Mm. The idea that anything could be possible in this southern land was made, made Australia uh, a blank canvas, a tabula rasa upon which pretty much anything could be projected. Mm. And I would argue that even up until the 1980s, people were projecting all sorts of strange and wonderful lifestyles and ideas and politics and educational policies, all sorts of things upon Australia. Um, and, and really mm. in the 1980s, I think, um, the world started to understand a bit more what Australia was like and started travelling here um, and started writing differently about Australia. And just, just a final question on this theme. Uh, Russell, do you agree that the conditions of the opening up of the new world were fertile conditions for utopian thinking because they did, they were conditions where the imagination was running more freely than perhaps than current times? I think in general, yes. I mean, I, and I think, uh, which I communicated to you earlier, that 
there is sort of a paradoxical relationship between utopian thinking and kind of confidence about the future. We've discovered a new world, and it sort of gave an impulse to, to yes, utopian thinking. And mm. that, you know, we, we don't have that sense nowadays, I don't believe. But, yes, I would think that there is a connection there. Between Which is not to say that the activities of Columbus, etc., uh, were uh, not uh, problematic, um, uh, which is a possibly for another discussion. But uh, right, uh, Alexis, um, the Aboriginal people that the early European explorers came across were were living lives that were, were so foreign to the Europeans. Uh, their the concept of society and lifestyle that Australian Aboriginal people were were living was so different from European lives at the time. To Traditional indigenous societies in Australia, would, would there have been a concept among uh, Aboriginal people and Aboriginal societies of utopian thinking, do you think? No, I don't think so. Um, no, I, I, I don't think... Um, I really don't feel that um, we thought that we were living in utopia or we had utopia dreaming... Um, I think the, uh, our culture is uh, is 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 structured uh, structured differently. It's um, uh, it's structured around um, uh, the uh, you know ancestral stories, the creation stories, the creation of you know um, beings that are still are being alive and, and in the in the country, and that. Um, they were more powerful than us, but they tied us to them, and uh, and and um, it um, and and our responsibilities were were to to maintain that sort of harmony and balance in 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 the country, um, you know, to, to traditional lands, and uh, you know um, we've always maintained we've been here forever, you know, for you know, tens of thousands of years. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and there's been scientific evidence just recently um, verifying that, you know, that um, we've been in particular, you know, um, areas of our country, you know, for those long periods of time. Mm. Uh, we haven't moved. Mm. And uh, because, the, you know, we have uh, um, responsibilities to, to, to those stories and the ancestral dreaming and, and uh, um, the uh, creation of how the country was created and to the resting places of those ancestors who are still there, you know, the spiritual yeah, ancestors. And um, that they... Um so it, it, would be it would be wrong then to look at the, the notion of an Aboriginal dream time, that, that, that ancestors are a part of the land and so forth as, as a utopia. No, I don't think so. Mm. I, I, I think we were realists. Mm. Um, and... Uh, um, that uh, we, we were tied to, 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 the, to the land in, 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 a, in a structure, as a law structure, a spiritual structure. And, um, uh, and there was n and, um, and, and responsibility you know, for, 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 for the land and, and, and for, for each other. And, um, uh, and to, to, to particular regions you mm -hmm. know, of our, our traditional country. Uh, we were talking earlier about utopia and uh, there's only one utopia I know mm. and that's a was a cattle station set up by um, uh, the um, uh, Sonny and uh, Trot, Trot uh, um, Cunock yeah. 
in um, uh, just in the early part of the 19th, uh, 20th century, um, before the war. Um, was it, uh, about 300 k's out of Alice Springs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah about um, um, two, 240 k's northeast north of Alice mm. Springs, and it's on uh, Amajita and uh, um, and Alawara peoples. Uh, that's their country out there, and uh, it's very nice, open. Mm open country, um, nice, nice um, open woodland country. And it, it, is a it is beautiful country. Uh, it's beautiful country, yes, but, but see, but they, they the, the Kunov brothers named a lot, lot of men who went out, you know, uh, white men who went out and uh, to settle the country, you know, the, the big harsh Australia. Yeah. And you know, they gave the, you know, a lot of these places names like, you know, Mount Disappointment, yeah. Mount Despair, you know, mongrel downs and uh, <laughs> um, and uh, you name it, um, your mistake creek, you know, up in the north. Um, so uh, that is, it was a bit of a joke, you know, mm. for them, but tongue in cheek that, oh, well, you know, everyone's calling their places these despair names, we'll call it utopia. Is that right? I've always, mm. I, I've, I've been, and we've both been to utopia, mm. and I'd, I'd always, I'd always wondered the history of that name, uh, and mm. I'd always seen it as, Ironic for different reasons, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're a white fella and you travel to Utopia, your, I suppose, immediately your attention is drawn to the kind of, the difficulties and this kind of dispossession and so on. But mm. that historical kind of explanation is fascinating, actually. Mm. And mm. as you say, it's probably the only place called Utopia mm. that any of us are likely to visit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Peter, should we view, is Utopianism? Uh, a political or philosophical way of thinking, or both? Well, I certainly think it can be. I mean, I think uh, when somebody sets out to, to sketch a utopia, as Thomas More did or many other writers, um, they're putting their values out there and they're saying, this is what I think a good society would be like. So uh, to do that, you have to decide what kinds of values you hold. And I think that that's... A, it can be a useful exercise, mm. um, even even if you know, in the sense that it is nowhere, that it's not actually going to exist. But it can still be uh, an aspiration to strive towards, possibly. Although there's some dangers in that, obviously. If in fact it's unrealistic, but but it can serve as a as an ideal for aspects of our society that we might like to get closer to in some respects, even mm. if in other respects we know that we can't. Uh, so, does it occupy a place in modern philosophical thought, utopianism? Uh, I think that there's a sense in which it, it does, although not under that name, but many, many people put forward theories about how you should organise society. Perhaps a famous one would be the late 20th century American political philosopher John Rawls. He uh, wrote a book called A Theory of Justice, probably the best-known political philosopher in the English language in the late 20th century, and, and he suggested principles of justice that ought to regulate society, that uh, principles of equality of opportunity, and uh, notably principles that, uh, the principle that any inequalities ought to be permitted only to the extent that they actually advantage those who are worst off. Mm. So in other words, if by creating some incentives and allowing some people to keep more of their earnings, they're more productive, and therefore even the people at the bottom of society are better off than they would be if you didn't do that then that's something that you ought to do. So there's a sense in which that's utopian. Obviously, it's not utopian in the sense of 
saying, uh, I'm not going to take any notice of what human nature is like, because then mm. you would just say, well, everybody should just share equally. You wouldn't have to have any inequalities at all. But Rawls is saying, within the constraints of knowing what will incentivize people to work more productively, then this would be the right set of principles of justice to use. Mm. So there's a sense in which uh, some ideas of utopia are lurking in the background of, of that sort of political And your theory. own personal philosophy, for example, of... Uh, uh, not countenancing the slaughter of animals for human consumption, not countenancing uh, cruelty to animals. Uh, is, that a, is that a utopian vision? Do you see that as utopianism? I don't see it as utopian in the sense that it, it will never come about, but I do think of it as utopian in the sense that it's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. In fact, just last Sunday in Melbourne... Um, I was invited to speak at uh, a march which was initially called the March to Abolish Fishing. And I said to the organiser, isn't that a bit utopian to think that you're actually <laughs> going to, you know, by marching we're going to abolish fishing. And he said, well, what I want to do is to plant the seed so that maybe in a hundred years people will realise that fish are also sentient beings, that they also suffer, that we cause a lot of suffering to them, that we're cruel to them. So, you know, you, in one sense you could say it's utopian to think that we'll stop eating animals, we'll stop being cruel to animals altogether. And in another sense you could say, well, who knows, conditions may change, uh, we'll find other things to eat, we're already producing more plant-based foods, and it's not going to happen soon, but maybe in a hundred years people will look back at the world today in which we, you know, reared billions of animals in factory farms and pulled a trillion fish out of the ocean and without any humane slaughter. Um, and they will say, how could people do that? You know, mm. that's a terrible thing to do. So mm. in that sense, I don't think it's absolutely impossible mm. or no way. Russell. Oh, yes, yeah, so I just want to add that, as was mentioned, th there's two books in Thomas More. And book one is not about utopia. It's really a discussion between Thomas More, so to speak, who is a character, uh, and our visitor from utopia. And the whole discussion is about what should the intellectual or the philosopher do about politics? Should he, it's only he at this point, should enter politics? You know, like, is it possible to change the world? And the whole book one is goes back and forth about, well, if you're so smart and you have answers, should you enter politics? Mm. And our visitor from Utopia, Raphael, keeps saying, no, the state, you know, they just want to murder, they just want to <laughs> have war. Mm. And if you really have answers, they don't want to hear you. And Moore keeps saying, more the character, well, isn't there a way to enter politics and sort of influence the state? And good old Raphael says, no, you know, again, the state doesn't want to hear it. And they go back and forth. And I mean, that's th that frames utopia, sort of the intellectual in politics. Is it possible? Mm. And even as Moore in his life sort of confirms it's not possible, uh, <laughs> is playing with this idea. Mm. You know, which is an oldest idea around, you know, mm. sort of the philosopher in politics. Mm. How is it possible? Is it possible? Mm. And it seems to me, you know, we're still with that issue. You know, how to, how to, you know, it's not just utopia. I mean, they discuss punishment and crime in book one. Mm. I mean, there's a whole series of very practical issues. Yeah. Can you enter politics and change the world? Mm. Uh, Jackie, I think Peter used the term unrealistic uh, when he was describing utopia, and I suppose in a sense utopia is essentially unrealistic because it's striving for something that's almost not attainable. It's kind of the point, really. Um, why has utopianism got such a bad rap today? 
do you think? It seems to be a term that uh, uh, implies, I don't know, naivety or it implies uh, idealism and inability to actually get something done. It's, it's, it's a shame, I think, that uh, the word utopia has this kind of connotation that's attached to it, and it really did become a very pejorative term, especially in the 19th century. Um, after the French Revolution, there were the utopian socialists and then the more pragmatic socialists um, who were, uh, after the French Revolution, trying to, to bring about change in France and influencing, to some extent, I suppose, the, the political philosophies of other countries in, within Europe and elsewhere. Um, th this kind of pejorative uh, connotation that, that utopia has, I think, is one that stops us from talking about utopia as freely as we might today. We talk about other ways of imagining a future. There's a, there's a, there's a sort of a, a discourse around alternate scenario planning. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a bit more boardroom than utopianism, but essentially it's about projecting a different way of being in a particular situation. And basically, behind utopia is this desire for a better way of being in the world. Mm. And this is the underpinning ideal behind utopia. And most people, I think, would embrace the term utopia if it was simply defined as the desire for a better way of being in the world um, and a better way of being for everyone. Mm. existing in the world but, uh, but, but and every, every being in the world. I was going to say instead there are some people who associate utopianism with fanatics, uh, with Pol Pot, with Hitler, with Stalin and, and so on. Do, do, does that help to explain perhaps the unfortunate it, connotation well, that the word, the word has got? If you ask me, it, it doesn't, it doesn't because it's basically wrong but it's certainly the way that people think about it. I mean, I teach a course in utopianism, and then I yes, say, well, let's look at Nazism. You know, what's the relationship between that and utopia? Well, the fact is zero, basically. There's no relationship, uh, unless you're going to say utopian is a sort of any totalitarian idea. But there's no evidence in the utopian tradition. I mean, basically, for all the imperfections, it's marked by tolerance and brotherhood and and yes, and so, you know these sort of values. So you know why, but it has gotten tarred with Nazism and as well as Stalinism, mm. uh, to be sure. So that it's it's now the 19th century. It's the 20th century uh, is the century of dystopia. Mm. It's of Orwell. It's of Huxley. Mm. Uh, and the term comes from the 20th century. Dystopia, just like utopia, the term comes from the 16th century. Mm. So it, it's coming out of that, but it's unfair, basically, I think. I mean, the point is to save it from that, from mm. uh, that kind of uh, mixture of totalitarianism, which I think it's basically unfairly tarred with. Uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, literature. Alexis, I was going to ask you about the role that literature plays in utopian thinking. What do you think? Um... Well, what's been a problem for, for, for us, Bob, is that there's, right from the start, and 
It was interesting to hear you, Jackie, talk about that, you know, 400-year history of looking for the, this great land down here mm. and uh, what it might have. And, uh, and it just kind of thought, well, maybe people were looking, we always say that um, uh, uh, the world started from here. Maybe they're looking, they're trying to find a way back. And, um, mm. um, but um, what's, what, what's been a problem to us is there's been so much written about us, you know, about, or ideas about, you, you know, I was thinking a lot about this and a lot of utopian ideas about what should be an Aboriginal life here. Yeah. And, um, um, and it's, and it's led to, you know, policies and um, laws and um, which have been, you know, you know uh, the whole history of this, mm. um, you know, from uh, uh, separating people and putting people on missions reserves mm. and incarceration, assimilation, integration uh, and um, so-called self government, no, not self-government, self-determination, self-management, and then um, the intervention. And, and these are all come from stories, you know, sort of this sort of utopian idea about what, you know, should be the average, what should uh, Aboriginal people be like, and mm. it's usually to assimilate. And, um, um, and it's caused a lot of dystopia for mm. us. And... Um, and, and I was thinking you know, that, you know, there's been so much written and, and Hannah Moore's Utopia reminds me a little bit of this, you know, it's like a, an anthropological uh, dig, you know, or not a dig, but um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 there's been a lot of uh, anthropological work and historians and all sorts of professional people written about, writing about Aboriginal people. And, the, and the, this building hmm. would hold probably a floor of it. And um, um, of what's been written about Aboriginal people, and uh, it's usually you know, based on other people's I, you know, values and judgments, and um, that's the kind of you know that sort of utopian literature that's you know been about Aboriginal people that it's created this dystopia, you know, it, and that mm. you know, and and now that we, I don't, you know, and all those thousands of years that we, we say we've been here and then how the culture was was established and you know and how it had had and how it still is um, that um, we are um, all what's happened in, the, in this 200 year history or more now is is we, we concentrate on hope you know mm. it's, it's not utopia it's it's a word it's hope and, uh, and, and hope's become big, big in our, 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 our lives, you know, you know, having hope that things are going to get better and, um, in, and hope for us. And, and uh, um, that's, um, and so that's from day one till the day we die, mm. you know, we've got to have hope. Mm. And, uh, and so this is what I write about. Yeah, <laughs> and, it is. And, uh, uh, and, and uh, it's... Uh, that's a new word, you know. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not utopia, it's called hope. <laughs> and, uh, um, but at the same time... You well, I mean, we could do with a lashing or two of hope at the moment. Uh, I was going to ask you, Peter, we live in a, in a time 
and I think about this because I've got kids now uh, in their late teens and early 20s who are confronting the world of of uh, global warming that may well even threaten, we don't know, but may well threaten the long-term survival of the human race itself. We, uh, you know, we turn on the TV set and we see that we're locking up people behind razor wire who are simply trying to make a better life for themselves. Uh, we're told that we live in fear of uh, random terrorist attacks. Are we living in dystopian rough and utopian times, given given the kind of images and the, the challenges that we currently face? I, I don't really think we are, and I think the, the picture that you're presenting is one that we get from the news media, yeah. because, of course, every act of terrorism is a major news story. Mm -hmm. um, but what the news media don't tell us is the enormous amount of progress that we've made and really important questions like reducing poverty in the world, like increasing literacy, like um, reducing violence um, and... For just to take that as an example, the chances of anybody uh, living today meeting a violent death at the hands of their fellow human being is smaller than it has ever been historically, mm. much smaller than it was when Moore wrote Utopia 500 years ago, for example. Uh, similarly, the percentage of, of people, the proportion of people who cannot be sure that they'll be able to have enough to eat for the next day or the next month or even the next year has dramatically fallen. It's probably lower now than it ever has been in human history. So, um, you know, if, if someone of Moore's time had seen a world in which we have that kind of security, both personal security and food security and degree of literacy uh, and freedom, you know, democratic freedoms obviously don't apply to everyone but apply to a lot of people, mm. I think they would have thought, gee, they've made a huge amount of progress towards utopia. They're certainly mm. not there yet. Mm. And, of course, climate change, which you mentioned, is a tremendously serious shadow yeah. hanging over all this, which does, I think, endanger it in the future. Um, but for the moment, I'd have to say, we've got it pretty good, really. But, but that's not the public mood, is it? Uh, and it's very hard to shift that kind of narrative away from a sense of... Well, this is just an opinion, but from a, from a sense of kind of despair and cynicism too, that not only are there problems, they're problems that people feel rather negative about the prospect of them being solved. Yes, that's true. And I mean, that's partly the problem that we adapt to things that we're used to. So, you know, we've adapted to the progress we made. Um, somebody calculated that uh, if you looked at the reduction in poverty by, as the World Bank defines extreme poverty, which is basically not having enough to provide for your basic needs, um, we could have had a headline every year since 1950. Newspapers could have run a headline saying 130,000 fewer people in poverty today. And that could have been run every day since 1950. Mm. And it would have been true. So, but you never see that headline. Mm. Um, but, of course, if something bad happens to 50 or 100 people because of a terrorist attack or um, some sort of climate disaster, um, that's a huge story. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's why people have this negative view to a large extent. So, Jackie, where can we see utopianism today? Where, what are some of the examples of modern utopianism? utopianism? It's a really interesting question, and I, I do agree with um, Peter that in, the, in terms of the big questions that we're facing today, there is room for hope. But we also see utopianism in our everyday lives. Ideas that were considered countercultural and only belonging to hippie communities or radical people in the 1960s and 70s, such as co-housing, 
urban agriculture, recycling, um, food, uh, second chance at using food, um, car sharing, Airbnb, <laughs> couch surfing. <laughs> All of these ideas were incredibly radical and marginalised in the 60s and the 70s. And it's actually only taken us 50, 60 years, 50 years really, to embrace these ideas as part of our everyday life, part of what we now call collective consumption or the share economy. As long as we've got a name for it, it seems, that is appropriate to the way in which we wish to define ourselves, it seems as though we are utopian. We are embracing some utopian ideals, but the name utopia is sometimes not the one that we want to attach to it. And I, I'm just mm. thinking back to the question that you asked Russell previously about um, Nazism and communism. We don't like talking about communism, but some of the acts, some of the ideas that we're putting forward about um, sharing food and avoiding waste and sharing resources are actually quite linked to the ideals mm. of communism. Well, I think you could argue that Marxism is utopian thinking, could you? I, I would agree with that, although mm. Marx himself Marxism. tried to distinguish <laughs> uto what he called utopian socialism, your French socialists like Saint-Simon and uh, Fourier and, and Robert Owen in England, from what he called scientific socialism. But, but the distinction is really, I think, about how you get there, because the utopian socialists seem to think that you describe this society and then people will say, oh yeah, that's great, let's do it. Whereas for Marx, <laughs> um, you have to go through the class struggle mm. and uh, the materialist story of history, which tells you about how you change the economic basis of society and then you change human nature and so on. But it was still utopian, I think, in the sense that he thought if you have a different, you know, if you socialise, nationalise the means of production, then you will get radically different human beings and you'll be able to have this idea of, uh, you know, from each according to his abilities uh, to each according to their needs. Uh, and I think, but I think that was a utopian ideal, that, mm. that just nationalising the means of production will mean you get a new kind of human being emerging. Mm. Um, and I think that's part of the problem, that, you know, that didn't happen in uh, the Soviet Union or other countries, and so you had to get all of this coercion and repression to try to mould things in, and, and mm. then the leaders obviously didn't behave as egalitarians <laughs> anyway. Um, so I, I think in that sense, Marxism is profoundly utopian. It, sh it should be said that... Uh, a reminder that Thomas More pulled off the trick of being a saint in the Catholic Church as well as being honored by Lenin as one of the precursors. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, I mean, that's, that's a good thing to pull off. Uh, I mean, it, it, I, I think it's true that we, we do live in a period, I, I would say we live in a period of paranoia, I mm. mean, basically, uh, which, which is hard to, as, as Peter was saying, it, I mean, most of the indexes don't substantiate it, but... but and I see it all the time, my students, I ask them, and they, they have a very dark vision of the future, even though I say, well, you know, your lives are so good. I mean, what, I mean, and, you, and you've mm. suffered no wars or depression, mm. but, you know, you, you fear the future. Mm. Uh, you know, what, what is it? I mean, I, you know, the media is probably part of the story, though I don't know what the whole story is, but uh, it does seem like we live in, uh, yeah, I mean, all the movies... Are looking, you know, are basically about how, how dangerous the future is. Mm. It's this dystopian future, uh, and I and I think yes, there are some counter movements one could look at, um, 
but they're counter movements. I mean, they're they're you know uh, they're small. One could try to see them happening, but uh, basically the atmosphere is retrenchment and fear mm. and doubt. Mm. Uh, and I say paradoxically, the utopians were confident and mm. optimistic, and we've kind of lost that. Alexis, you spoke about hope before. I mean, it, it, I mean, it must be difficult for some of the indigenous leaders in Australia to retain their hope, do you think, in the, in the face of some of the developments and some of the yeah. issues they have, to, they have to confront? Yeah. Um, I'm just listening to the conversation and, and, um, and it seems very promising, and, and, but I, I think it's all kind of a, a, a Western thing, you know, that, that you're there to do these things to make, you know, better to be, you know, live in a place like Melbourne and um, um, but um, I don't know. From my, my my understanding is there's so many pe people living in sheer poverty in in in, in the world, and millions. And um, and and then we got um, you know one in every yeah 113 people on 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 the globe who are, um, who's a refugee. Is looking for, for is looking for for somewhere, you know, or, or is in you know in you know crossing you know hard lands and seas and are in detention camps and um, and um, refugee camps for for years, and um, um, so and then we get um, governments. You know, I was reading the paper this morning. Yeah, some French um, hope, a presidential hopeful, um, is saying that uh, you know it's going to save France from um, uh, you know France for the people, you know, like a, you know uh, mm. uh, America, you know America mm. for America, and mm. uh, um, save it all from globalization. And uh, it seems like we've got our heads in the burrows, you know, mm. we're, and uh, we're not looking at some of the, the big things that are happening in the world. I, I think there are big things happening in the world that are, are, are quite frightening. Well, certainly mm. there are, but mm. um, I think still comparing this with other times, um, mm. that there have you know, always been a number of people uh, who have been driven out of their land by perhaps uh, con conquerors mm. or perhaps by uh, drought or, or changing conditions mm. so that they couldn't produce... But we're not handling that very well. No, we're not mm. handling it very well at mm. the moment, but mm. I'm saying, uh, and it's and a lot of people, as you say, maybe 60 million people who are displaced, mm. but um, still, as a proportion of the world's population, I think you'd find that that's probably lower than it has been in, in earlier periods, that uh, food security is, is greater, as I say, than it, than it has been previously. So, so it's, it's, it's a comparative judgment. I'm certainly not saying that you know, we are in any kind of utopia or that everything's fine. Um, but say so, you know it, people, and, and there are people in in Australia who are in poverty, certainly. But but they're entitled to some social security. Uh, they're entitled to free healthcare. They're entitled to free education for their children. Um, they're entitled to uh, safe drinking water. They they get you know the, these are things that people have not traditionally had. Um, and so I still think it's 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 considerable progress over earlier periods of our history. Peter is human rights discourse utopian? I don't think the discourse is utopian because the discourse is simply saying um, 
people have certain rights and we ought to respect them and we ought to um, try to prevent them being violated. Okay, the codification then of human rights. Ah, something like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Yeah. Um, Which is a construct. Yeah, uh, I would see that as aspirational rather than, I think I would call it rather than utopian, um, because it's, it's something that you set up there and you just say, we can, we can measure ourselves by how much closer we get to this, by the kind of progress that we make. Um, but it's, it's not exactly utopia, because even if the rights were realised, I suppose you might say, well, there could be other things that mm. would fall between the tracks that are not covered by those rights. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't you know, necessarily say that everybody cares for each other. This sort of brotherhood ideal, uh, uh, sisterhood that, that Russell mentioned is, is not necessarily part of a human rights discourse. Mm. Alexis, I heard someone the other day when uh, an Aboriginal activist spoke of uh, sovereignty, mm -hmm. uh, describes sovereignty as utopian, as a utopian vision. How would you respond to that? Um, well, it, it could be called a utopian vision because um, we believe in our, yeah, our sovereignty. Um, it's not a utopian vision. It's a, it's a, it's a fact, and uh, that. Uh, 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 we feel that we're, we're the sovereign people of this, this country, mm. and uh, and um, uh, and that uh, uh, the you know and, and talk about you know human rights issues. You know, we talk about human rights and indigenous rights, but these issues about justice, as far as we're concerned, mm. and and uh, and and a, a long-standing battle that we've had with this country, and and you know with with, with Australia. Over, over, you know, things that have um, we've suffered for a long time, and the fact that it's never been settled, and uh, you've seen probably recently. Well, there's been years that we couldn't even say the word sovereignty in this country, mm. or, or, or or land rights, or or or, or treaties, and uh, you know, Australia was so far behind America, Canada, New Zealand, other places, um, but. Uh, it's 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 been interesting how how that has turned around uh, in 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 um, the last year or so, mm -hmm. where um, you know the government was pushing you know for um, uh, recognition mm. in, in the constitution, and um, and a lot of Aboriginal people say no, you mm. know we're 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 sick and tired of that. We want to talk about you know uh, we we want treat you know. Mm. Uh, trees. We don't want this incremental sort of improvement, and uh, or or uh, mm. you know, things being better. You know, bit by bit. You know, every hundred years or so, we might get something. And um, but uh, started pushing for a treaty in in, in Victoria. So now the, tre uh, the uh, Victorian government are in treaty negotiations. Now that's spilled over into South Australia, where now they've set up a, a treaty commission, mm. and. Um, uh, or they're in the process of setting up a treaty commission, and I believe in the Northern Territory um, that um, <laughs> they're even talking about a treaty. But honestly, they should be talking about a whole new system of government, government <laughs> arrangements in the Northern Territory. And if any politician in the Northern Territory had any sense of decency, that's what they would be doing mm. after uh, the, the despicable way that um, Aboriginal people have been treated in, mm. in the Territory over a long period of time by a government system that has never been um, reviewed or looked mm. at 
where everything that we do as a people is reviewed all the time, and mm. uh, and we're always accused of, you know, uh, something, you know, doing something wrong, and uh, everyone's always looking for pulling back Aboriginal rights and um, uh, resources and things to get over what we've had, you know, happened to us in the last 200 years. Mm. Russell, I can remember when I was a young undergraduate art student studying first-year sociology, I was told that the golden age of leisure was soon to be upon us uh, and that we'd be working less, uh, <laughs> which seems rather utopian uh, today. Uh, it did then too. Uh, but actually, there's a, there's a kind of new sense of uh, urgency around those issues now because uh, the rate at which the new generation of robots will displace human labour is predicted to escalate quite dramatically. Uh, this would seem to be an area where some utopian thinking may well, may well be needed, where we need to think about the future of work and the future of leisure. Well, uh, I, I would agree. I mean, if we're going to have... Uh, yes, we've moved from taxi cabs to uh, you know, Uber and now to self-driving cars, mm. uh, self-driving Uber. So, you know, exactly wh where's the work going to come from, mm. right? Uh, and I think this... One of the yeah, basic issues of call it what you will, advanced industrial society is the question of labor and not only employment, but unemployment and underemployment. Uh, and we, s we can't figure it out, I, I might say. I mean, that, uh, you know, not to become too uh, Marxist here, I mean, in the sense that, you know, <laughs> as we become more productive, uh, you know, increasingly we can't find the jobs for people. And it seems to me that the utopians, and it's Thomas More is... Uh, you know, has this idea about work actually is not good for you. You know, it's bad for, it's bad for your health. <laughs> it's, it's not good for you, you know. It's, and it, it should be minimized as opposed to expanded. Um, and we, and I'm telling you, we in general, you know, have yet to understand this. I mean, we basically want more work. Or we want, you know, give everyone work. We can't figure out how to organize the society which has less work. Mm. And it seems that the utopians, and that's not only Thomas More, it's the utopian socialists, it's everyone else who sort of said, you know, work is, is not good for you. It brutalizes mm. you. It's boring. It's bad for your health. Um, and we need a society where it's minimized. That's a certain type of work, though, that he's okay, referring yes. to there. Is yes. it? He's talking about labor, really, isn't okay, he? Okay, yes. It's a certain kind of work which, which, is, which is and was very common, however, mm. uh, and th there was a counter-utopian tradition and William Morris and others who would argue, yes, there was work as creativity was good for you, but that was another kind, that, you know, that was mm. another kind of work. It wasn't typical. It was more like, uh, you know, crafts. And, mm. um, but there's no doubt, I think, that the, the question of labor and we, uh, is the vexing issue of, of contemporary society, mm. and we can't solve it. Uh, and it seems to me the utopians and Thomas More too, like we should work less. And why? Well, we're not producing. I say, you know, we, we're going to have less fashion. Already in Thomas More, just three kinds of clothes. Mm. Kind of boring, yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're working less because we're going to produce less because we're going to need less there's life on the other side of work. 
I suppose there is, uh, Jackie, some evidence of a live simply movement, of a stripped down right. living more simply movement. Yes, and certainly the leader of our Greens Party here promoted the idea of six hours a week, six mm. hours a day yeah. working and four mm. days a week. So, I mean, it's, it's still alive in some political oh, yes. parties today. Um, and and that, that idea of the return to terroir, the return to, mm. to agriculture, urban agriculture, if you like, yeah. um, is, is, is in line with some of these ideas about um, um, understanding, the, understanding what labour is and what the contribution to food production actually means in, in life today. I, I, I'm kind of interested in how equipped, though, we are for utopian thinking now. Uh, and we haven't really spoken about uh, any of Alexis's actual books, but it seems to me they are acts of remarkable imagination mm -hmm. and they are about the mind's capacity to imagine. When you ask your undergraduate students to imagine utopias, to engage in some utopian thinking, what are you getting from them? Are you getting a big range of thought or are you getting quite a constrained vision? What are they capable of producing? It's a very, very interesting question and it's, it, the, the results from students tends to be anchored in pragmatism and repeating um, a lot of the discourses, noble discourses that they have heard from public intellectuals that they admire. So there tends to be um, a kind of a cycle that is self-perpetuating uh, within the imaginary of current students. Now, I'm talking about students at the University of Melbourne who are highly privileged in mm. general. Yeah. I'd like to say also that utopia is something that we haven't actually spoken about or only obliquely. Utopia is a Western Christian construct. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily exist in all cultures in the same way. So just as, you know, utopia today is unacceptable as a term in some uh, circles to describe some of the things that we're doing today, utopia, I would argue, or the notion of the desire of um, for a better way of being in the world actually does exist in all cultures. Mm. And it does exist in all cultures, in all times. Some of the most poignant and radical utopias that we are seeing in literature today are coming from post-colonial societies. And they are coming from a perspective that is most often projecting a dystopia, but is also criticising the society that we're living in today and sometimes proposing a different model for hope. These are the imaginaries of tomorrow, mm. I think. This is where, from Africa, from the um, Caribbean islands, from Alexis Wright, we are seeing some of the most powerful utopian slash dystopian literature today. So I think that when we don't necessarily have enough to rail against, maybe we can't imagine that great leap forward into a better way of being. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I will also ask my students on occasion to sketch out a utopia, and they write something, and I, I look at it, I say, 
you know, this, this is like Obama's America or something. It's, it's like, you know, it has, it has cheaper, higher education, cleaner parks, you know, a little less traffic. It's like, this is utopia? This is your boldest idea? You know, it's like, I mean, think of Fourier. Think of these people who have these, you know, extravagant ideas about human relations and sexuality. And, and now you have this, yeah, that there should be, uh, yeah, you know, cleaner parks and, and, and you know, better medical care. And uh, I do think it's a failure of imagination. Uh, and I wonder to what de de degree, I mean, maybe there's other places that's flourishing, uh, but it seems to be declining uh, where I see it. I sometimes, maybe it's a vitamin deficiency. Peter, Peter, what are you seeing in your students, Peter? Um, I'm not exactly seeing utopia, but I am certainly seeing ideas of quite significant change. I mean, we've... Yeah. we've already talked about animals and the treatment of non-humans and, and the environment, of course, in general. So there's certainly people who have visions of quite dramatic change there. Um, there's also the rise just in the last decade of uh, the effective altruism movement, which is people who want to make altruism an important part of their lives, mm. but want to use evidence and reasoning to do so as effectively as possible. Mm. Um, basically, you could say they're trying, their, their aim is to do the most good that they can in life. Now, that's idealistic anyway, idealistic compared to more cynical generations that have said, oh, you know, what I want to do is to get a good job and have a comfortable home and um, lots of consumer goodies and, and so on. So I think there's, I find quite a lot of idealism in my students. Mm. I wouldn't say utopianism because yeah. they don't necessarily think that everybody is going to do this and yeah. that therefore we're going to get the best possible world, but they think that we can move in that direction. Mm. So that's quite hopeful. And, and Alexis, do you see it's always problematic asking the the author what the intention of their work is but is part of what you do as uh, as a writer of the types of books that you write about opening up our capacities for imagining and 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 the and the power of stories to help us imagine i hope so um i spend a lot of time writing mm. <laughs> and a lot of time thinking and um, and creating I, I, I just um, like to let my imagination just go wild mm. um, <laughs> and, uh, and I just keep on working over and over until it does. But um, it, it, it the books, you know, well, I, for me, you know, I, I think the books are, are, are a good way of... of um, you're creating dialogue or, or looking at an Aboriginal situation in a different way, mm. uh, like Carpentaria. Um, what I wanted there was something to be as authentic as I possibly could to 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 uh, you know my homeland mm. and uh, to the way we think and the way we believe in things. And um, um, but um, but also I'm, I'm learning as well, and mm. what I'm. You know, and hoping other people will pick it up, but um, in in the way that you know, all stories are important to us, mm. and um, and uh, um, nothing's been 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 uh, been resolved here, and um, but also it's um, um, I just lost my train of thought about 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 this, but um, I, I, 
with, with Cart and Terry, I w you know, wanted to show that, you know, w w those how strong that mm. those beliefs are that, uh, that you know, ab Aboriginal law is, is more powerful than other, than other laws. Mm. And because uh, um, uh, people always say, you know, I've sat, sat in so many meetings over the years, you know, where I've heard our elders say, you know, our law, our law never changes white man's law changes all the time <laughs> so what does that mean you know yeah. and so you can sp spend ages thinking about that mm. and I've tried to p express that in that that particular book and in um, this one book is 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 like a critique of about hope yeah. what what it what you know where, where does it go and um, uh, but the, the books go throughout the world mm. um, they're taught in universities and um, uh, uh, they still exist. Um, it's ten year um, anniversary of um, Carp and Terrier. Mm. I was told this recently, and they're going to have it's a my ten years. Wow! Yeah, and uh, they're going to have a. Um, are they going to build the Angel Day's house at the the, the Brisbane Writers Festival? That's and. Uh, I mean that's very very nice, you know, that a book can can live that long, and uh, and it's um, absolutely yeah. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you there. Actually, by the way, <laughs> look, uh, we've um, I feel like we've kind of wandered all over the place in this discussion, yet barely pierced the surface. So we're going to take some questions from the floor now. We've got a couple of people with mics here, uh, and uh, have um, a woman at the front who's put her hand up. But um, I think we've got mics on both sides of the room, so I'll kind of let the microphone attendants determine who gets the microphone. Uh, just a very quick thing, uh, no uh, short speeches that are disguised as questions, uh, please. Uh, my name's Jeanette Condon. Thank you all for your um, contributions. Uh, I'm a retired librarian and, and uh, part-time grandmother now. Um, I'd like to ask uh, Professor Singer in particular, um, we've all seen many attempts to sanitise war um, and I was intrigued by Russell's comment that war, that young people haven't experienced war when, in fact, even in the United States, thousands of young people have come back in body bags um, from recent wars in Iraq and so on. And maybe when um, George Bush sent the forces into Iraq, it was a vision of utopia that he had in mind. Maybe not. But... Um, the question I have, Professor Singer, is last in the, during the last week we've seen the spectacle of our own Defence Minister answering questions in Parliament about whether or not Australia, as one of the coalition partners, was responsible or involved in the murder of the civilian people, the 200 civilian people, um, I think it was in Mosul. Why? Would a defence minister go to such lengths to distance us from responsibility for something that we've signed up to and sign up to every time, murdering people in foreign countries? Well, this I think specific case is what <laughs> I'm yes. interested in. I think to say we've signed up to murdering people is putting it a, a little too sharply. Um, I suppose what we've signed up to is to participating in a conflict in which... Um, it's inevitable that civilians will be killed. And there is a 
a doctrine that says that we must try to minimise civilians, we should not target them directly, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's acceptable that a certain number of them will be killed as a result of, if you like, the, the unforeseen and undesired side effect of hitting certain military targets. Um, now, I think this is a doctrine that can very often be uh, misused, misapplied, um, and there's a question of the priorities here. So, um, it certainly happened, you can go back to Iraq and Afghanistan, there are many other cases um, before this recent one, um, where it does seem as if the coalition to which Australia did sign up put such a high priority on saving the lives of its soldiers, be they Americans or Australians or whatever, um, that it is clearly prepared to risk the deaths of large numbers of civilians in those countries. And I suspect, without obviously being privy to any details that you know, are not known as yet, um, that that's what is going on here. It, it could have just been a careless mistake, or it could have been that you know, apparently there were some genuine targets, there were some ISIS soldiers in this area, but um, uh, there would have been perhaps greater risk of uh, the coalition's casualties if they hadn't done what they did. But of course, there was a great risk of civilian casualties. So I think that that's what's going on here. There's um, the devaluing of the lives of the others as compared to the lives of our own. Um, it's not that we're deliberately intending to kill them, but we don't place enough weight on trying to avoid killing them that we're prepared to take greater risks with our own, with our own people. Okay, another question at the back. Good evening, Th and thank you. Um, I'll try to keep this to a question, I promise. Um, I guess the question is, do, do you see people with a disability as having a role in, a, um, I guess, a utopian vision, or let's say a, a healthy, rich and vibrant society? And, and can you comment on that, I guess, idea, given we've talked about animals mm -hmm. and, and other um, components of utopianism, in a sense? Is yeah. that another question to me? Uh, is it directed to anyone in particular? Or? Well, well I, I guess Professor Singer, but, but anyone, please. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I suppose you could imagine that in a complete utopia, there might be um, ways of learning what causes people to have disabilities, and then maybe parents would choose not to have people with disabilities. So um, that's a possibility. Now, some people would say, well, in that case, you lose something from society. You lose a certain kind of diversity, a certain kind of caring. But my view would be that, that if you did have that knowledge, then parents ought to have that choice. And indeed, of course, in many respects, we do have that knowledge now through prenatal diagnosis. And the overwhelming majority of parents, when they have a prenatal diagnosis of a serious condition, or even a condition that's compatible with quite a good life, like Down syndrome, the overwhelming majority do decide to terminate the pregnancy. So I, I wouldn't want to prevent that. I don't think in a ut utopia you would remove that right of choice from parents in those situations. And therefore, it may be that with greater knowledge, there would be fewer or even no people with disability. That, that's a possibility. But, but you could certainly imagine a, where that was not the case, you didn't have the knowledge, and people with disabilities were welcomed and given the best possible lives. Can I just add, on behalf of, again, Thomas More, I mean, there is a little part in his utopia where he talks about disability, in fact, and again, He's, you know, several centuries ahead of his time. I mean, he, he basically says uh, the, the utopians sort of ridicule those who make fun of people with disabilities. 
uh, and uh, there's a place in utopia for those who are disabled in certain ways. It's not a crucial passage, but it's in there as well. And so there is a sense of, of uh, yeah, differently abled people have a place in utopia. And I suppose in a utopian society, we make better accommodation for the integration of people with disability. And we've, we've seen certainly that occur, for example, with building design uh, and accessibility over over recent times as well. Um, well yes, I suppose that's, uh, that's fair enough, sure. Okay. Um, uh, you've got the mic, so yeah, yeah. you've got the floor. <laughs> it's a historical question for Russell, and that is, uh, you briefly mentioned about Thomas More, who wrote this book, Utopia, and then also that Thomas More played a role in governing England at the time. And you mentioned, I think, something about, uh, well, I'm interested in the question of whether he thought of his own utopia as something that he should aspire to as a ruler, or was he just a hypocrite and said, I want it to be like this, but I can't do anything about it? Or what was his vision, what was his relationship to his own book in terms of his own governing of England? Well, that's, that's the, uh, what, the $64,000 question. I mean, we <laughs> don't have know. Slaves, for example? Uh, I mean, you know, Thomas More writes the book Utopia. He's, he, he's in the book as a character, Thomas More. Uh, he has, you know, he develops the utopia. At the end, Thomas More ends and says, this is ridiculous. I mean, the character Thomas More, when he hears the story, he says, this wouldn't make any sense. He said, that society wouldn't work. Um, which he just wrote. So, um, so is it a satire? Well, a satire of what? I mean, of, I mean, parts of contemporary England. Okay, but I mean, we we don't know the answer really uh, of how he put these two parts of himself together. Uh, but it, I don't think that's so unusual in the history of art and writing that so people play two different roles that. You know, that Thomas Jefferson, you know, has slaves and writes the Declaration of Independence. You say, well, how do those two things go together? And the answer is, we don't know, actually. But, but surely he must have been led to some extent by his own aspirations. Okay, but we, yes. And, and, and I say book one was a discussion about the, the philosopher in the state. And in some sense, Thomas More had been arguing with himself, like, you know, should I enter into government service? Uh, you know, can one change the world that way? And uh, it's not a great lesson, I say, in that regard. <laughs> Can I just add that Erasmus uh, and Thomas More knew each other, and Erasmus thought that Thomas More was quite a jokester. Um, he, was, he was actually kind of making some jokes in his utopia as well. So there was a humorous aspect to it. And one example of this humour is um, in the wedding rituals in Utopia, the gentleman and the, 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 the bride and groom-to-be must appear to one another naked in order to reveal everything that is <laughs> on offer here for the wedding ceremony <laughs> and after the wedding. And this was very, very different to the way in which Thomas More um, led his life. Uh, if, according to his biographers, he was really quite a chaste man. Um, and uh, it certainly was considered to be a little bit of a joke uh, shared with Erasmus as well. Yes, but, but to say it was a joke, I mean, like all jokes, it could have a serious intent. It could have a grain of and truth. And in that sense, yes. you know, jokes you know, have a message. Mm. Uh, yes, he was a jokester. But mm. And you could say it's another respect in which we've got a lot closer to utopia. 
I mean, hands up, <laughs> married people here who did not see their partner <laughs> 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 Okay, we have a question at the back. Um, thank you. I was wondering if you could comment on utopia in a very like explicit temporal sense. Is it always a future-oriented concept? And are there prohibitions or taboos around talking about or situating utopias in the present or in the past? Because I noticed in today's panel there was a lot of hesitation about really embracing the present as a utopia or the past as a mm. utopia. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit uh, more fully on the idea of utopia as existing solely in the future. Good question. Sure, I, I, can, I can say a few words about it, but I'm sure others might have some ideas as well. Um, utopia in the beginning, Thomas More's utopia, his term, was not in the future. It was in the present. Well, it was in the immediate past, wasn't it? It was a trip to utopia um, in the immediate past. In 1770, the first Uchronia was written by Louis-Sébastien Mercier, a Frenchman who set his novel in the year 2440, to be precise. And it looked a lot like England at the time. <laughs> but it was a futuristic utopia, a Uchronia. And from that point on, people started to imagine more and more often a utopia in the future. So it really was something that came into being, I suppose, because the spaces of the Earth were exhausted. The spaces had been discovered. Interplanetary travel was not necessarily on the in the imaginary at that stage. But, of course, we have seen interplanetary utopias um, in more recent times. That's where Australia is so interesting. Because in 1770, Australia still seemed like a place to be discovered for the, for the Europeans. And so that's why I think Australia remained a site for imagining utopia for much longer than many, many other places did. Does that answer so? Oh, the utopias in the past is a really interesting question because quite often in a futuristic utopia, we will see a comparison between um, a, a, a future utopia that actually looks a little bit more like a dystopia to many of us, and then there'll be a, a society that exists outside this perfect, harmonious, apparently perfect ideal place. And it will be a return to the earth. It will be a return to agriculture. It will be a return to this kind of nostalgic, Arcadian notion of harmony with nature. And so within futuristic utopias, sometimes we have that utopia set in the past. So it, mm. it does sometimes exist within our imaginary, within the literature. And certainly I think many of us have nostalgia for the past and for a simpler life. And, and that has become part of our imagining for a time when we might not work so much. But in terms of the future, have the futurists become the new utopian thinkers, Russell, perhaps? Well, it depends what you mean by the futurist. There is a art movement of futurists. But I think basically uh, the short answer I won't give the show. Is no, no. <laughs> uh, that, that, that there is a technological dimension to mm. much of the th that kind of uh, futurism. Mm. 
which I don't see really as part, I mean, it has less to do with, uh, yeah, leisure and love and human relations. It's more to do with the world, uh, which is, you know, technologically uh, more advanced. Because uh, there, there were the cyber utopian throughout well, there. Okay, yes. So, yeah. I mean, is, so is, is that utopian? Is that, is that a vision of the future? Uh, you know, I, I, my, my cell phone my doesn't work here. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> uh, you know, like, this is, this is better, not having, uh, you know. Uh, so I'm not sure that the futurist, if you mean this technological vision, mm. is really a utopian vision. Okay, we'll take another question. Um, uh, it uh, seems to me that you can actually construct an argument, uh, given the recent events in America with the rise of Sanders and Trump that, and to a lesser extent Le Pen uh, and I've forgotten the name of the Dutch, Dutch chap but the rise of these extremist right or left movements particularly the rise of the right movements could al almost be regarded as a, ut a expression of a utopian idealism certainly in terms of their uh, supporters they've regarded as being um, fulfilling the ultimate um, expression of what humanity can be about. Uh, I realise it's not Moore's version of utopia, but it's uh, along those lines. I was just wondering if, if they can make some sort of comment mm. on that. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I would disagree. Uh, I mean, again, if you, if you say that utopia means virtually anything, I mean, any plan, any idea, then sure. Then, uh, th then yeah, th then Trump or Marie Le Pen or, you know, are, are utopian. But if you say, what is the relationship between them and their ideas to the utopian tradition, then you have to say it's, it's zero. There's no, there's no relationship. I mean, th those, the ideas of, of, of nationalism, uh, of, of racism, of whatever, I mean, don't really have any resonance in the, in the utopian tradition. So that, I mean, to say that they're utopians, it seems to me, distorts uh, yeah, what the utopia is about. And it's using it in a very, I mean, it's, it's said all the time, but it's, it, I don't think it's historically accurate to say that they're utopian. I, mean, there's, I, I see no real intersection between them and the utopian tradition. The what? S S Sanders. Oh, Bernie, huh? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, that's, I mean, yes, he's coming from a, a slight, he's, I mean, but between Bernie Sanders and Trump, it's, it's a different world. And you could say, yes, he's coming out of a socialist tradition, which has links to the utopian tradition, which we've said. I mean, in that, yes, you could see something there. Uh, but but if you talk about Trump and Marie Le Pen and the rise of nationalist and populist movements, I don't see them as utopian. One more question at the back, uh, and then I'll get Des to wrap up proceedings. This is probably a good question to end on, actually. Um, <laughs> the term utopia, why do you think it has lasted so long? Is it something to do with each generation being able to look at it with a fresh pair of eyes and reinterpret it and reimagine it and reinvent it. Why do you think the term has endured? Oh, 
Well, I, I think that's a, it's an excellent question. And I think if you look at Thomas More, it, it's five centuries old. It reads well. The book one issues about intellectuals and politics is totally contemporary. Book two, it's not totally contemporary, but it's raising issues about, yes, about leisure, about labor, about tolerance, and even, yes, even about hunting and, and, and you know, and, and uh, animal life. It's, it's raising issues which, which we haven't resolved. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, we can't accept it all, but it's, we haven't answered the issues it raises. And it, it reads well. I have a little quote. I knew I brought my, <laughs> brought my uh, notebook up here for a reason. I can never quite remember the whole quote. It's from Oscar Wilde, <laughs> The Soul of Man Under Socialism. He says, a map of the world that does not include utopia is not even worth glancing at, for it leaves out the very country at which humanity is always landing. And that is indeed a perfect point to end on. <laughs> well done. And I'll just uh, hand back to Des, who's going to tie all of these ends together and uh, summarise this magnificently. Des? Thank you. I, you know, uh, to paraphrase Mark Twain, I think a Latin joke is no laughing matter. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I come out of this with a sense that the point of utopia is, is not to find answers, but the kinds of questions that are asked and the demand that it places on us to leave behind our conventional thinking. Um, I, I think I'd want to emphasise that utopia is not just idealistic. That is that in Moore's utopia and generally, there's a concern not just with paradise, for example, but with the structures and institutions of a society and how that changes people. And that actually makes it quite grounded in the world, quite concrete in lots of ways, and, and not really just an unanchored kind of dreaming. Um, I think this temporal question is incredibly interesting, actually. Um, and, and I guess... The, the shift that, that Jackie points to between utopia as a place and then utopia as a time in the future is to me a very significant movement in how we think about it and says a lot about how we relate ourselves to it and how optimistic we are of finding that place. Um, and, I th and I think that, I, I guess I think there's a real distinction to be drawn. I think the world in, at least is, is full of utopians and futurists. But, but they're really quite different. The, the utopian wants to change the world in order to fit our needs. The futurist wants to predict the future in order to adapt ourselves to it. Mm. Those are entirely different ways of thinking about how we relate to the environment mm. and how we relate to the future. Well, I mean, the, the, the Centre for Law, Arts and Humanities is committed to an interdisciplinary thinking which is equal parts imagination and scholarship. And I think, and that's at the same time speaks to both the wider community and an academic constituency. And I think tonight's uh, event is a perfect example of the importance of that partnership, the importance of those dialogues and that relationship. At this point, again, I want to thank the ABC and the National Library for their enormous support in allowing this event to take place. A big hand in particular to Paul Barclay, and, and we do look forward to hearing the final result on RN in the months to come. Uh, so thank you very much to Paul. Uh, it's also the first fruits of, a, fruits of a collaboration, not just between the ANU and uh, Australian cultural institutions in Canberra, but um, between the Colleges of Arts, uh, Law and Social Sciences. 
And I want to thank the officers of the deans of uh, law and so arts and social sciences, the Peter Herbst Colloquium in Continental Philosophy, the ANU School of History, uh, and two great university-wide initiatives, one of the oldest humanities uh, centres in Australia, the Humanities Research Centre, and one of the youngest interdisciplinary initiatives uh, at the ANU, the ANU Gender in Institute, for their immeasurable help and support. I want to thank in particular the four participants here on the stage with Paul for their vital contribution from the University of Melbourne, Jackie Dutton, from UCLA and all the way from Los Angeles, only yesterday, Russell Jacoby, from the University of Melbourne and Princeton University, simultaneously Peter Singer, <laughs> and Miles Franklin Award-winning author Alexis Wright. Please thank them all. And lastly, and most important, I want to thank you all very much for coming and making this a night to remember. And I want to leave you just with the two most important questions that Thomas More asked all those years ago about the new island of utopia. Quare and quam. Why and how. <laughs>